welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Emily Hutchinson. And I'm your co-host, Sharon Mander. And I have a question for you, Sharon, before we get started. Have you ever experienced back pain? I will say yes. I almost want to say I'm experiencing back pain right now. <laughs> okay. I feel like I sit so much that yes. I have so much back pain. And I don't know if it's from sitting, but recently I did an interview where somebody was like, if you have too much calcium, you could have kidney stones, and that could be back pain. Oh. And I was like, okay, I drink way too much milk. <laughs> I kind so of remember that episode. I'm like, do I have back okay. pain because of that, or do I have back pain from other things, or do I not exercise enough? You know what? Either way, there... I feel like I'm becoming an old man slowly and slowly. <laughs> and, you know, I think that you're saying things that a lot of us can relate to because I know back pain is extremely common. And our guest today is somewhat of an expert in back pain or at least the physiology of the spine. So today we're here with Taylor Shelton. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's yeah. great to have you. And so can you tell us just a little bit about your research? Yeah, so my research um, mainly focuses on a spinal disease, intervertebral disc degeneration. And so um, this disease is so significant because it's really connected to back pain. Um, as you guys mentioned, you know, a lot of people experience back pain. And so often when they uh, go to see their doctor and the doctor does some imaging to see, you know, what could be behind this pain they're experiencing, experiencing in their back, uh, about half of the time, the doctor is able to diagnose based off the imaging that it's intervertebral disc degeneration. So, yeah, that's the main focus of my research is sort of around that and um, its relevance because of, yeah, the back pain it causes a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Dang. Okay. So, I, you, so you, do you need to get, like, imaging done to see if you have this degeneration? That's how they doctors are able to confirm it mm-hmm. uh, based off this imaging, um, usually done with MRI, so they can take a look at the back and, and see what's going on um, in the spine and in the different tissues. So that's really how they would confirm it. But like I said, because about half of the people with back pain uh, end up having intervertebral disc degeneration, um, they may easily uh, just assume by that 50-50 chance that they likely have it. So you're telling me to go to see a doctor. <laughs> That's what I heard. Well, if you're, experience, <laughs> if you're experiencing back pain, maybe, yeah. yeah. Okay, I have a question, and this might be a bit outside of what you do, but mm-hmm. 50% have disc degeneration. What about the other 50? Well, that is a good question that I don't know the exact answer to, but I would say it could be from uh, any other sort of um, back injuries, or it could be injury to another part of the body, maybe mm-hmm. to the knee where they're overcompensating and using their back a lot. So there oh. are a um, variety of other uh, things that could be in play that could also cause low back pain. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is there a specific part of the spine you're looking at? So far, what the research has shown is that uh, a lot of the, well, the the root source of the a lot of the back pain is coming from the lower back, mm-hmm. so the lumbar spine. Mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah, if you reach behind and towards that lower end of your back there, that's usually um, the tissues that are usually through the wear and tear of life get damaged the most and mm-hmm. will likely be uh, the source of a lot of the pain that um, you're experiencing. Okay. okay. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about what the spine is really like? Because I know very little. So, okay, you got those bumps in your back and there's mm-hmm. bone, but then there's also these discs. Mm-hmm. And so can you kind of describe like what the anatomy of a spine really is just to put it into so we can kind of picture it? Yeah. So that's a great question. I So a lot of people know about the spine and the vertebrae, the bones, but not a lot of people know about the tissue. And in fact, you know, before I even started, before I started my master's, I really wasn't aware that much of the tissue either. 
uh, the intervertebral discs. And so they're these tissue, uh, these disc-shaped tissue that are um, throughout your spine located in between each vertebrae, so each of those bone segments. And they're sort of uh, serve as like these shock absorbers that, you know, as you go through your life, all this stress is placed on your back through your different movements, through gravity, and they help uh, absorb this stress. And so that's properly and equally um, distributed and sort of not putting too much pressure on one part of your back at once. And this is what um, really allows us to have this flexibility in our back and be able to perform all the movements we usually do during the day. Uh, so now, could you draw us your spine? <laughs> I cannot, no, audio only. <laughs> yeah. But audio only. I have a question about the shock absorbers. So you were saying there's like everyday wear and tear. Would the shock absorbers like deteriorate because of like a big force, like say like jumping off something, or like does even like standing count as like deteriorating your? They wouldn't necessarily deteriorate mm-hmm. um, just from standing, or even really from just one jump. It, it's yeah. more. Um, standing and a jumping movement or anything like that is part of the stress that's mm-hmm. put on the vertebrae that these shock absorbers help deal with. So one thing I uh, didn't get to mention is that, you know, back pain, you know, we tend to experience it more and more as we get older. So mm-hmm. it's really the accumulation of the stress being put on the back and therefore on these tissues, you know, throughout the lifespan that's really going to cause um, the t- deterioration, mm-hmm. um, not so much so, you know, one particular event. Okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I have a question about where you fit into this spine Mm -hmm. uh, problem. So you're not on the clinical side treating patients. You're kind of behind the scenes. You're Mm -hmm. a a lab guy. So what is it that you are doing in the lab to kind of understand back pain and the the disc better? Right. So um, as I mentioned, these uh, tissues, the intervertebral disc, are responsible for helping the body um, properly absorb all the stress that's put on it. And so what I'm mainly looking at is... um, a specific protein located within the cells of these tissue that basically are able to absorb the information from the environment in terms of the stress that's being put on the spine and then subsequently tell the rest of the body, okay, this is what we need to do to sort of um, respond to all this stress that's being put on the spine. Yeah. So I'm really focused on Uh, the signaling process about how the cells in our body respond to the stress we're putting on our spine. So how are you doing that testing? Hmm. That's a good question. So I'm looking at a specific uh, protein, and we'll just go by the abbreviation Mm -hmm. TRIP-V4. I'm able to do um, a lot of studies with mice Mm because they're also mammals, and they are a good model for humans when we're looking at back pain. And so I have, or my lab has, Um, selectively bred some mice to not have this particular protein that we're looking for. So we're able to uh, analyze the tissues of the mice that don't have this particular protein and that do have this particular protein. And that way, we're able to see what effect the absence of the protein has and therefore why it may be important. Okay, that's mm-hmm. nice. That is really yeah. cool. I, mm-hmm. So you talked a little bit about why mice make a good model for humans, but I, I wonder if we can get into that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mice and humans, okay, they're both mammals, they're both vertebrates, they have a spine, but I'm just yeah. wondering because the, the mice have four legs, right. and so they're they're kind of running around. Their spine is kind of horizontal, if you will, mm-hmm. but humans have two legs, and so their spine is kind of vertical. Uh, does that play into your research at all about how the spine is getting different pressure? Does does that matter? Right. So um, the uh, 
common perception is that, yeah, by having four legs in mice as opposed to humans that have two, this sort of um, force placed on the body by gravity is um, maybe distributed into four instead of just being distributed into two by humans. Yeah. And so what um, studies have actually showed is that while humans uh, do experience less force, or sorry, more force due to gravity, and gravity is enacting more force on their spine, for mice, in order to be horizontal and have their spine in that hor- horizontal position and um, stay in shape, mm-hmm. you know, when you think about it, there's all the different spine segments and they're all there and they're constantly at, at all times being compressed and, and um, to allow the mice to have their spine and have that shape mm-hmm. or else if um, they weren't being constantly compressed you know this the mouse spine would just would just fall apart and they right. wouldn't be able to walk even though they are four-legged so um, what studies have actually shown is that uh, there's a thing called mechanical preloading and this is sort of the force um, required just to keep the spine in place and that force is so great in four-legged mammals that it uh, accounts for the reduced force of gravity that they experience. So wow. even though they're different forces, you know, this mechanical preloading versus gravity, um, the sum total of the force ends up being the same. Yeah, oh, it's that's really, really interesting. sweet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I might want to just sneak in another question. I've heard, I don't know if you if you know about this, but is it true that human spines, like they stretch while you sleep and then when you wake up and walk around, they kind of compress in at the end of the day? Yeah, and so I was going to say, um, That's even a common way to think about the uh, mouse spine, but in terms of a human is, yeah, when we lie in our bed, um, you know, our spine doesn't all of a sudden just fall apart because we're not being exposed to as much gravity. There's still that mechanical preloading that will uh, compress on it and keep it in place and, um, yeah, allow the spine not to change shape just because we've sort of changed the angle and position of our body. Right, because we do spend quite a bit of time laying down, right? Like every night, our spines are horizontal. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. So I feel like you're taller in the morning. Is that the answer? (laughs) (laughs) Or not, because of the preloading. Oh, true, true, true. We'll have to do some measurements, yeah. 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 That's a a test for all you grad students out there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Do a case study. But I wanted to go back uh, to selective breeding. How do you, like, I'm not from the sciences, so how do you do that? How do you decide this mouse doesn't have this protein? Mm -hmm. Do you just like hope you get lucky? No, well, we actually have (laughs) um, like great specialists that Mm -hmm. are so well versed in mouse breeding that help us with this. But what I actually should have mentioned is what's special about my mouse model is it's it's actually not a whole body knockout. So we've only Mm. eliminated this protein in the cells of the intervertebral disc in that tissue um, located in the spine, as well as other cells that express cartilage, so some cells in in the knee and stuff like that, but for the majority, we're targeting only the cells in the um, intervertebral disc tissue. And um, basically how it works is it's it's a bit complex, and you know, it took, took me years to wrap my head around, but essentially, this sp- breeding strategy is able to focus only on um, genes expressed in a certain tissue and so because we're focused on um, genes expressed by uh, a collagen 2 promoter so that you know regulates this gene expression uh, it's not present in all the tissue as opposed to their more uh, broad breeding strategies that will um, target genes that are common throughout the body in that way it would be 
um, a whole body knockout, but okay. mine is just one specific tissue. Yeah. So I'm just going to ask you one really fo quick follow up because you used the expression twice. What is a whole body knockout? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so a whole body knockout is where um, the specific protein um, or specific gene that you're looking to um, eliminate and prevent mm -hmm. from functioning. This is when you do it throughout the entire body. So it'll affect cells that are in the heart, that are in the lungs, in the intervertebral disc tissue, in the brain, as opposed to um, what mine would be called as a selective knockout. So we're only targeting one specific area. Dang, mm -hmm. that's crazy. Yeah. It is yeah. a whole body knockout. You <laughs> get hit really hard on the head <laughs> and you just get knocked out. <laughs> no, not quite. Uh, okay, this kind of leads me to ask the question. So you're you're only knocking out trip V4 from the spine or from the cartilage tissues. Mm -hmm. uh, does it have other functions in other tissues? Like, is there a reason why you don't knock it out in the whole thing, the whole body? So, um, yes, it does have functions in other tissues. What we're more so focused on is... Um, specifically looking at its function in the intervertebral disc cells that's why we're only eliminating the, it there that mm -hmm. way if you know we knocked it out in um you know other cells as well then we wouldn't know that whatever changes that we are to observe maybe could be because it's also knocked out I don't know, maybe in the right. eyes and the mm -hmm. mouse is just crashing into yeah. the wall or something <laughs> like that we just want to make sure that what we're yeah, seeing yeah. is um only because of what's happening in the intervertebral disc. Yes, it is expressed in other cells, and it's also responsible for its role in other cells also has to do with signaling and helping respond to the environment. So mm -hmm. in you know, heart or lungs, it could be responsible for uh, helping respond to changes in pressure um, and you know, telling the body, okay, there's a change in pressure, so do this to respond to it. So uh, yes, it is expressed in other cells, and it's still and its function all has to do with sort of that responding to the world around to changes right. in the world around us. All yeah. right, that's okay. really interesting. All right, so you are done. You didn't do the whole body knockout, but you uh, got your protein away. What do mm -hmm. you do next? Do you just stare at it? <laughs> like, <laughs> no, that, that's a good question. <laughs> Funny enough, even though you know the main relevance of back pain for humans has to do with the fact that it so much affects our quality of life and what mm -hmm. we're able to do and things like that. But actually, just for the purposes of my work that I'm doing with the mice, I'm um, actually just looking at the damage that's done to their tissue. And so I'm looking at this uh, after the mice have been sacrificed. Um, so it's just uh, analyzing the um, the spine tissue, the intervertebral disc, to see if, without having this particular protein, if maybe it's it, it leads up leads their spines to their tissue to have to have more damage than the mice that do have the protein. Uh, could you specify what you mean by sacrifice? <laughs> yeah. So, so, so uh, after after so the so the mice, unfortunately, to to look at their mm -hmm. spines have to be put down, and mm -hmm. so. Um, 
yeah, we're able to okay. um, look at the spines after that. It's not so. some ritual. That's how <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I try not to be too graphic with this. Right. You know, yeah. right. That's pretty funny. So I just want to ask about uh, age because you brought up kind of at the beginning of the interview how the spine deteriorates over time and how this is more uh, relevant in, in older people. Mm-hmm. Is the same true for mice? Are you doing some sort of age comparison as well, like comparing like baby mice without the protein versus uh, kind of old old ones? I actually have I have two separate projects. One where I'm looking at the effect of this protein, um, loss of this protein with age. So looking at older mice that don't have the protein, how does this affect them? And then I also have a separate project that's looking at if this protein isn't present from the very beginning of development. So if the mouse, when it's in its embryo form, doesn't have it, what occurs to the uh, mouse spine. But um, I'll focus mainly on the... Um, age associated is what I actually found is yes with age um, the older mice so 24 months and so 24 months is about the end of a mouse's lifespan anyway so could be about equivalent to elderly age Mm -hmm. for the mice we found that um, for the male mice when they didn't have the protein and they were at 24 months they had uh, much more damaged tissue in their spine than the other male mice at 24 months of age that did have the protein. That's a long time, 24 months. It is. I'm curious of like, is there anything like factors or variables you have to make sure you like know of before you start this experiment? Because I I would feel like it would suck if you're like, halfway through the experiment and then you realize there was a mistake and you're like oh there goes a year of my my yeah so fortunately um as i mentioned like there's great Mm. specialists who are able to um do the breeding strategy to make sure we get um the mice and we know which mice have Mm -hmm. the protein which ones don't and they even have um you know they'll do one experiment to check that they don't have the protein Mm. and they'll double and triple check so they've done a great job of that and actually I was fortunate enough that the majority of these mice, um, they had been aging in the lab prior to when I got there. So um, nice. I wasn't really present for the m- duration of these mouses' mm-hmm. lifespans. I more sort of took over, um, as I mentioned, after they had um, mm-hmm. unfortunately been put down and mm-hmm. did the experiments after. Yeah. Okay. Right, because 24 months is kind of the length of a master's degree, right? So, <laughs> it is exactly. Yeah, like if you yeah. just started, like the mice were born on the day you got there, you'd yeah. be done by the time they were ready to, to study. It, it yeah. did, so yeah. fortunately it was done uh, before then, but it, that made it sort of extra nerve-wracking because it's like, you know, if I'm handling this mouse spine and something goes wrong, it's not like, you know, I can wait another day, week, or even a couple months, it's like this is two years. So yeah, yeah. yeah. made it made things a little stressful. <laughs> the pressure is on. But it was good. I was extra cautious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah for sure. Yeah. Uh, I have a question about kind of sex specific differences in the mice. You talked about mm-hmm. male mice having this one difference. Did you look at females too, and and were they exactly the same? Were there differences there as well? Yeah. So we did look at female mice, and um, what we found is, so as I mentioned, for the male mice. Uh, it wasn't until 24 months of age that we began to see differences between the mice that didn't have the protein and those that did. And in the female mice, we also saw that the effects of not having the protein also weren't really relevant until they reached this elderly age. Um, But what's interesting that we observed is um, the mice that didn't have the protein and were female at this elderly age actually not having the protein provided a protective effect for the female mice as opposed to um, in the male mice where it caused 
uh, um, damaging effect. Really? And so, yeah, this was an interesting um, sort of sex-specific difference that we observed for um, what the consequences of the loss of this protein would be in the mice. Yeah, That's really yeah. interesting. Do mm. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt no, Sean. No, you can go. I feel like we're going to ask the same question. I know. Why? <laughs> uh, why is that the case? That's a great question. <laughs> I have I have no idea. Um, you know, we were the work I've sort of done has been at the beginning of looking at this protein specifically in the intervertebral disc anyway, so there's not too much um, background on it. We do know that in other tissues, um, there has been sex-specific differences that have been observed. And, and a similar trend to mine, so not having the protein, as we've seen, is worse in males than in females. And this has influenced, um, and so I should say specifically for mice, where the studies have been done, you know, male mice that don't have this protein have more osteoarthritis than female mice and things like that. And so, um, yeah, that's the exciting part of, you know, sort of the end of my master's and, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully... Um, work after is yeah to see what what might be behind the sex specific difference yeah yeah so you were talking about like this has more or this has higher or like this has less is yeah. there like a metric you use to gauge this yeah um so that's uh, a good thing i should mention is there is a scoring system that we use mm-hmm. to measure how much damage there is in these tissues in the spine um to measure to quantify intervertebral disc degeneration mm-hmm and so even though it is qualitative and sort of you have to observe it and grade for yourself, yeah, there's an established scoring system that um, I've been using, and I should specify that it's a mouse-specific one. So okay. it's different than the one, for example, that a doctor would use if, you know, he was looking at an MRI and look, looking at, you know, a patient's back. So the one I do is uh, mouse-specific, and, yeah, mm-hmm. that's what I've been doing to sort of um, quantify the results. Okay, right. that's mm-hmm. really neat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, this question might come out of nowhere, and you might not know the answer, and that's cool. But are there any humans that are missing this protein just, like, naturally? They just have some sort of mutation, and they don't have the protein. And has science found these people and and figured out if their backs are funny? (laughs) Yeah, so uh, that's actually a great question. Um, There are people who may have a mutation either where they um, don't don't have this particular protein at all, or maybe it's present, but it's not working. And um, this has been shown to be um, pr- somewhat present in a lot of um, sort of um, sp- uh, congenital spine disorders. So people who's, um, who, when they're born, their spine is maybe in a different state than the normal, healthy, expected version. Um, so yeah, it's present in those and and um, some other uh, different sorts of diseases. Um, yeah. Okay, so we have to figure out what the problem is with the sex-specific difference, or not the problem, or what's going on behind that. Uh, we know this protein is important, but what is the next step for bringing this to the clinic? So how, what's the, or if you know, what are the next steps for, okay, you're doing uh, this in mice, you're looking at this protein, how is this going to eventually turn into a treatment one day? Yeah, so the um, thought could be, I, I think, you know, could be twofold. So it could either be um, used in a in a potential therapy down the line where uh, maybe cells in the back could be targeted, let's say, for example, in men, because that's where I um, saw the absence, absence of this protein being pretty destructive. So maybe 
in the future cells in the back could be targeted and injection could be made to make sure that maybe if they didn't have this protein or if it wasn't working that now it was and that could help alleviate some of the back pain mm -hmm. and also um, there's the possibility that if not having the protein or having the protein um, could perhaps be an indicator of uh, back pain down the line then maybe you know it could be used to perform screening so maybe people could have an idea of what um, sort of the state of their spine could be in, you know, decades down the line. Okay. You may not know the answer to this, and it's totally fine, <laughs> but let's say there were someone in this room who has back pain. What could they do? Are we looking at this person right now? I have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> I'm looking at Taylor. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say there's definitely tons of things you can do exercise-wise and drug treatment-wise that I I mean, I don't know too much about would be more specific to mm -hmm. like a physiotherapist or something like that. But what I will add is or mention is that sort of what makes um, what I was so interested by my research and what makes it so um, relevant is that right now all these treatments that maybe are out there for you are only temporary. So they mm -hmm. only temporarily relieve this pain, but one way or another it's, it's going to come back. And so the idea with uh, some of the work that I'm doing, sort of looking at what's going on in the body and how it's responding to the stress put on your back is that maybe this could be, you know, a small piece in the puzzle used to develop treatments that are more longstanding and that could um, maybe not just relieve pain, but even uh, restore function in the back and, and mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's impossible. It's <laughs> <laughs> not impossible, but... Your back is screwed. <laughs> I know. No. I've got kidney stones. I've got screwed oh, no. back. I've everything. <laughs> Everything's got... Uh, the more I do interviews here, the worse it gets for me. <laughs> who knows? Science happens fast. You know, yeah. 10, 20 years from now, who, they, they could be healing people's backs. We don't know. True. Yeah. yeah, that's true. What's next for you 10, 20 years from now? So you're, you're almost cool. done your master's. Uh, what would you like to do next? Do you want to continue this work or do something completely different? Yes, 20 years from now, <laughs> what would you like yeah. to be doing? Once everyone's backs are cured <laughs> Once, yeah, and your job is done. You know, I was prepared for a lot of questions, you know, about back pain, about stuff like that. Yeah. That's not what I'm uh, prepared for. That's uh, one that I think about a lot. And so uh, I'm not too sure right now. You know, I hope somewhere down the line I'm I'm still involved in science in some way and at least Maybe what I will say is hopefully in some way, maybe not even necessarily with the work that I'm doing or necessarily with back pain, but yeah, I, I would maybe like to m move a little from the basing science a little more into the um, clinical and how it's, you know, being used to help, um, you know, people and, and, you know, affect our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. But mm -hmm. that's pretty much all I have you know set in my mind so far and really you know things are just fluid i'm focusing up on you know finishing this masters and w ready for whatever the future holds yeah i yeah. just can't believe you don't have a 20-year plan i know right? <laughs> oh my goodness doesn't everyone have a 20-year plan <laughs> i barely have like a day plan honestly yeah okay no that's true that's that's fair enough yeah how did you get into this research in the first place did you always have kind of an interest in science and then how did you find yourself in a spine lab yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so yeah, I always had an interest in science. Um, you know, I really enjoyed science in high school. When I came here to Western, I was in the biology department, so I was always focused on science. And then I just, as the years went along, I just find my, myself um, particularly drawn to 
um, human physiology and how the body works and sort of how, you know, different diseases or maybe what goes on in the body can um, end up having this, you know, macro level effect of, you know, um, affecting our daily lives. And so, um, yeah, when I was looking to, or sorry, when I finished my undergrad and I was looking to move to my master's, I was really looking at um, research that wasn't too zoned in on a micro level and that I thought, you know, had some real world relevance some like some more tangible real world um, relevance. And so um, I was looking at different labs and, you know, fortunately came across um, the lab of my supervisor, uh, Dr. Cheryl Sagan, who was uh, doing great, who had been doing great research on the spine and on back pain and was fascinated by that. And yeah, I was lucky enough to uh, join them and learn more about the spine, learn about the intervertebral disc, and, yeah, do all this great research. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much. Well, we are almost out of time, so I will say thank you very much for coming on the show and uh, telling us all about what you do. Yeah, I look forward to Googling you in 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) Then we'll know. (laughs) Yeah, then we'll know maybe what my plan was. No, thank you for having me. I had a great time. Yeah. Yeah. All right. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Sharon Mandur, and my co-host was Emily Hutchinson. We've been speaking with Taylor Shelton, and this episode was produced by also Emily Hutchinson. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcast at sogs.ca. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all our episodes wherever you find your podcast. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the rest of your night.